0: Here on the protest is beef burgers.
1: Welcome to episode two of Airwaves Full of Bacon. Thanks for coming back. Produced by me, Michael Gebbert, James Beard Award-winning food journalist and video maker of Sky Full of Bacon, Key Ingredient for the Chicago Reader, and other stuff. Have you ever wondered what it's really like to be an anonymous restaurant critic, passing judgment incognito, Facing the wrath of readers when you knock their favorite place? In this episode, Julia Kramer, former Time Out Chicago reviewer, tells us all about it. And since we did the interview over lunch, at the end of it you'll hear her very last Chicago restaurant review. I know what the next Gotta Go, Lines Out the Door restaurant in Chicago is going to be. It's a tiny shack serving Texas barbecue with Filipino sides. Hey, listen, it works. I'll talk to the chef and co-owner of Small's about how this odd combination came about. And how do kids like it when their parents are foodies? That's the story I told at a storytelling evening at Ina's restaurant a couple of months back. So put away the chicken tenders and sit still, kids. Jeez, I can't take you guys anywhere. (music) Joaquin Soler and his partner Dan Cessnowitz ran the brown bag lunch truck, which was actually bright blue. The same color is the only reason you'll spot their new barbecue restaurant, otherwise hidden in a coach house on a side street on the northwest side. Small Smoke Shack and More combines classic southern-style smoked meats with Filipino-tinged sides. And it's about two minutes away from exploding as the next hot thing in this town. I stopped in on the day we all gather to celebrate fusion food. We're here on the 4th of July. Yes. Did you have a good morning? Uh, you're not open, but you were doing pre-orders. Yes, we people. did
2: pre-orders for pickups uh, and uh, yeah, it was pretty good. It was pretty good today. Uh, a lot easier than a regular day here.
1: <laughs> so we've got this uh, curious combination here, you've got kind of traditional barbecue and southern food with the fried chicken and all yes. that, and then there's all these Asian, I guess Filipino.
2: Filipino, um, a little bit of Thai, which, Korean.
1: <laughs> yeah, and, and you came from, I mean, you, you worked at Oba, which was a sushi restaurant.
2: Oba was actually uh, not quite sushi. We were, uh, how did the chef term it at the time? We were applying classical French and Italian techniques to traditionally Japanese ingredients and then vice versa, applying Japanese techniques to traditional Italian and French ingredients, that kind of thing. Okay, either
1: way, it's a long ways from Texas barbecue. Yes, a little bit. (laughs) So how did all this come together? What made you want to do this in particular?
2: Um, I think it was just, it became all about the things that I like to eat. So this is my idea of comfort food, when I get hungry. And I have, like, you know, I'm fiending for something, or there's something that I really want. These are the things I want to eat. So the garlic rice, that is something I grew up with. It's just something I love, and it's something that um, these are things that I didn't see being done a lot in Chicago. I'm sure there's somebody else in the U.S. that's doing this kind of thing. I don't know. Barbecue Filipino? I'm not sure there (laughs) is. (laughs) I don't don't know. Maybe. You'd be surprised. Um, But But yeah, these are just the foods that I like to eat. And we just kind of, you know, applied some of the lessons we learned working in restaurants in the past. You know, I never smoked, well, it's a lie actually, I did smoke meat at home, but it was never like a thing to smoke meat. That was just a happy accident of, I want to open a food truck, And again, going back to, I don't really, I want food that I like to eat. I'm not a big sandwich guy. I'm Filipino. It's not a meal unless there's rice. So I started trying to figure out what can we serve that'll work. And when I went to Franklin's barbecue in Austin, it just kind of all came together really quickly. Like, oh, barbecue holds up super well. Let's do barbecue. Let's just do brisket and pulled pork and see what happens. And serve it with all this other wacky stuff that we like to eat. You know, And it just kind of worked out. So, Right now, this is what we're serving. And a lot of people like to say we're this Asian barbecue place, which is true, absolutely. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if you start throwing some more Spanish-type things, because I grew up eating a lot of Spanish food um, in Manila. Um, that's what my dad and my mom like to cook and eat a lot, um, in addition to the Filipino and all that. So I wouldn't be surprised if you start to see some of that kind of stuff. What it would be yet? I don't know. You know, um, but I imagine in the wintertime, you'll start to see, maybe we'll start smoking ham hocks and making a cayos tripe, you know, a tripe stew with smoked ham hocks and all these different goodies in it, garbanzo beans and a sofrito, an extra virgin olive oil, flat leaf parsley, that kind of thing. You know, we'll play around a little bit.
1: While Joaquin took a smoke break in the gangway between his building and the next one, we talked about the food truck life. Now, was the food similar to what you're serving now?
2: A little bit. Um, You know, I'd like to think that the food is way better now for the simple fact that it hasn't sat around in the truck for a little while. You know, now the brisket's chopped or sliced to order. Pork is pulled, if we can even call it that, because we don't really like to, we don't do like the bear claws and like tear all the meat apart. The meat's tender enough. We want people to be able to do that, cut into it, see the pink, see the smoke ring, whatever else we might have. No, I liked that
1: it was big chunks. Thank you.
2: Um, You know, we want them to be able to tear through the park and all that. Um, So on the truck, we did the brisket uh, with a similar sauce, which we still call tiger Cry. We did, towards the end, we were doing the barbecue, uh, the the pulled pork with the the bacon mustard sauce. It was a little bit different as well. Um, And for the chicken, we didn't do fried chicken as much as we wanted to. It's just no... I just don't think there's a way to hold our fried chicken on a truck successfully and have it be well, be good um, bibimbap, that's something we put on the truck. Um, and that we were particularly proud of because we had this crispy fried egg, you know, it was a big China, a quart size or i I'm sorry, 26 ounce size, uh, Chinese takeout box. And you open it up and it's this sunny side up egg with crispy edges, just right in your face. And we were super proud of that just cause it's sitting on a truck when we were able to, we were able to pull it off. So why not? Um, and that became a huge hit. Um, so we start playing around more rice bowl type things, um, and yeah. So now it's you know now we get to play with the food a little bit more. We could play with the food before, but there was a lot of calculation involved. You know, before you could go out, before I could go out with anything, I had to go out with it a couple of days without selling it, just to see how it stood up. So I'd have like you know before the BOP ever hit the road. For three days, I took out three boxes. And the first box I would open up, you know, at the, like 10.30, 11 o'clock when I first hit. I'm like, okay, that looks pretty good. Taste a little bit. Okay, it tastes pretty good. Okay, that works. And then at 11 o'clock, we'll do it again. Taste it again. Oh, okay, that works, that works. And then noon, do it again. Okay, that works. And then once we figured it out, okay, fine. We can sell the bop. We can sell the fried egg. But we're if we still are sitting on it at 12.30... It's a loss. We're not selling that product anymore. That is going back to the shop. That's comida for whoever's here. If somebody's still at the shop, when I get back. But the brisket, I felt, the brisket and the pulled pork held up really well on the truck. I have to say that.
1: Now, how do you think people respond to Filipino food? Because I think that's that's one that's had a hard time breaking outside Filipinos. Yes, <laughs> basically. absolutely. Basically.
2: I've thought about this a lot, so I'm gonna wax poetic here for a second. <laughs> Historically, Filipinos um, Filipinos are very uh, it's a very regional country. There's all these different provinces, so there's and everyone claiming to have the best food. Okay, so there's the uh, Cebuanos in the south. There's you know people in Manila. There's people in uh, Cebu. Uh, I'm sorry, in Pampanga. There's people in all these different regions, and they all make these dishes same dishes in slightly different ways and when they open up restaurants they're aimed at other Filipinos they never aim them towards Americans Um, and nobody's quite seized on you know a couple of people have seized on those dishes that will appeal that just have universal appeal you know I think that's part of the issue right there Um, I think Filipino food is awesome I think it's great I think it's fantastic Um, but I think You know, it's about time that it happens for Filipino food. You've got pecking order. You've got Isla uh, over on Lawrence uh, here in Chicago. You have these two places in Manhattan called uh, Jeepney and Maharlika. They're doing some great things with Filipino food. Um, And they're finally starting to appeal a little bit more. They're seizing on a couple of dishes that appeal to, like, more of the mainstream or gringo palate, if you will. You know, um, I think a lot of it, too, has to do with the fact that just, culinarily speaking, um, Americans have matured a lot, Uh, just in terms of what we like to eat and what we will, you know, go out and pay for, you know. Several years back, Girl and the Goat couldn't have served something called pig face, you know, and now it's a big hit, and well, that just walks right into Filipino food, a really popular item in the Philippines, is called sizzling sisig which is a chopped up pig's head, and ears, and snout, served on a sizzling platter. With calamansi, it's Filipino key lime, toasted garlic, and all these other goodies. You know, people are starting to have an appreciation for, you know, what we used to think of as variety meats. You know, so I think that's kind of playing a factor in there as well. I think the other issue with Filipino food, and it's just, again, a cultural thing, most Filipinos speak English. So even, like, the immigrants, when we move here, it's just my own personal theory, there's really no such thing as, like, a Filipino town. There's no need for Filipinos to congregate with one another and do business with each other and all that. Um, And therefore, there's no central place to get Filipino food. You know, there's just no central location for it anywhere. I think the only, big besides Skokie... uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the only place that's considered to be like that is Daly City out in California um, where there's a high concentration of Filipino folks. People know that they can go there and hit these different Filipino restaurants. But other than that, it just doesn't exist. You know, as we continue, Filipinos will start to figure out that we need to figure out, you know, we need to identify those little gateway dishes. You know, it's a perfect example, how many Thai people are sitting at home today eating Pad Thai? I don't Crab Rangoon or like, You know it's just not happening You know and Filipinos I think once we figure That out collectively We have a bunch of the same people Different people doing the same kind of thing You know it'll start to happen But there's a lot Of people that know Filipino food Anyone that's ever worked or spent time in a hospital Yeah We just really hope people have fun With the food That's it we just hope people enjoy playing around with the different flavors that they get all the different slaws and pickles and sauces and all that who knows 50 percent of the people that come in tomorrow may not like anything They're like oh the brisket's too fatty or why don't they have regular barbecue sauce and all these other things and we'll see what happens all
1: right so there's a good question i, I had my bag with all my different sauces yes bag, and i was sort of sitting there going now I don't know what goes with what, <laughs> and you don't right, and you don't have the straight up, you know, tomatoes, cinnamon, smoky flavor, right, barbecue sauce, right. So pulled pork and brisket, what do you put on
2: it? Pulled pork, you get the uh, bacon mustard. Okay. okay, so it's a mustard that we make in house, and then we do a little bit of rice wine vinegar, bacon, bacon fat, and a little bit of the uh, smoked pork shoe, actually. Um, and then the brisket, you use the uh, tiger cry for it. Uh, the tiger cry is our take in a traditional dipping sauce that they use in Thailand for grilled and this other dish called fried, dried beef. Um, so it's lime juice, toasted garlic, maple syrup, uh, chili flakes, super simple. Fish sauce, lots of fish sauce. Um, and that's about it. But yeah, it's very, it's not, they're not the thick sauces. You know, it's barbecue, the meat should stand on own. So.
1: Small's is in the Blue Coach House at 4009 North Albany. Speaking of Filipino food, and I should say that first and foremost, Small's is a barbecue joint. If you want a little better sense of what Filipino food is about, I recently tried and liked a homey spot near North Park University called Merla's Kitchen. It's run by a Filipino woman, her daughters, and the occasional college kid, and they have a combo platter for about eight bucks that gets you samples of several popular dishes, including chicken adobo, pansit noodles, and empanadas. It's right by Foster and Kimball, 5207 North Kimball. I'll have links for it and a couple of other Filipino places mentioned by Joaquin at skyfulofbacon.com. Time Out Chicago changed our food scene from the moment it appeared in 2005. It made it trendier, more about the now and the who's hot. But if it helped make food a kind of local celebrity culture, it didn't do it by puffing everybody up. Time Out's primary reviewers, Heather Shouse, David Tamarkin, and Julia Kramer, were thoughtful, literate, and famously tough, even on chefs who had just been touted as stars a few weeks earlier. Time Out Chicago dropped its print edition a couple of months back. And now the last of those three main reviewers, Julia Kramer, is leaving the site and Chicago for New York to join Bon Appetit. I suggested to Julia that we do an interview over lunch. We met at a tiny, family-run Central Asian restaurant called Chill Cafe, which Abe Conlon of Fat Rice had recommended to her. Before we sat down to talk, we chatted with the owners, Ilkham and Sultana, about what we'd be eating. You want to talk about the food? (laughs)
0: Sure, I'll talk about the food. And your name Um, is? Sultana. Sultana. I'm Sultana. I'm from Russia, too, and I'm Turkish. We have soups and hot entries and salads and pastries, all of them made here on our own, nothing from many stores, nothing prepared. And um, the most popular food we have are dumpling soup and the actual dumplings.
1: So who, who mostly comes here?
0: Um, people from Central Asia, like uh, Kyrgyz, Russian, Turkish, um, Turkmen, Uzbek, all those people, sometimes Americans. That's not so often, but...
1: Okay. Cool. Alright, thanks. I just read that you were not a food and drink writer when you started at timeout, is that right?
3: That is correct. I started as an intern and at the end of my internship um, a part-time position opened up to write about TV and I was not going to apply for that because I have no expertise in TV Um, but David Tamarkin and Heather Shouse who I had been interning for in the food section um, encouraged me to apply Um, just I think they wanted me to stick around and um, so I did and Um, they hired me and it turned out that the position really was doing some online writing about TV, which I could do, you know, writing about, uh, Top Chef and I don't remember if Mad Men was on then, but you know, I watched the normal TV stuff. Um, but then it also just gave me the opportunity to contribute to all the sections of the magazine. And by spring of that year, I became full-time writing about food. So it didn't last too long.
1: Now, were you kind of a foodie before that, or what was your...
3: Definitely. Um, I have always been extremely into food. I was always a very picky eater, um, and which is funny because now people are surprised. Oh, you eat everything. But I actually think that it's a continuation of the same trait. You know, <laughs> like I, I do eat everything now, but I'm still just as sort of... Um, discriminating about it, fairly or not. But the reason why I got into this job is really not because I'm so obsessed with food, but more because of my background as a writer. And um, that is something that I sort of developed during college and really wanted to... I just wanted to write, and that's why I would write about TV or gyms or whatever you wanted to sort of throw at me. Um, And obviously, um, I was able to show them in that almost year that food was really what I was most excited to write
1: about now what do you find interesting about writing about food because I, I feel like I come at it sometimes like someone who's much more interested in writing about it than reading about it Yes, it's got a small set of things you can really say about anything
3: yes that is um, so funny because I really don't read that much food writing because a lot of it um, just, yeah, it's, there's a very kind of limited vocabulary, you know, oh, you had good pasta, it was toothsome, like, great, but you know what I mean? Like, it's like people are just sort of taking the dishes and using a set of adjectives to describe them, and that's not that exciting to me. The reason why I got interested in food writing was really because of Jonathan Gold. Um, I went to school outside of Los Angeles and started reading his stuff in um, LA Weekly. Now he writes for the um, LA Times. And um, I just, there was something about the spirit of his writing, the sort of excitement, and the way that he would tell stories of these places. And he would really, there was something really valuable um, and Uh, really exciting just about reading his pieces even if you were never going to eat at those restaurants or didn't care about food you know they were just sort of um, quality writing and I think that that is something that gets lost from food writing because there's a conflict right like on the one hand you're supposed to be providing a service so ultimately people should know after they read it should I go to this restaurant or not what's good there and what isn't but on the other hand like I think it's important Um, not to forget that it is also just an independent piece of writing that should be sort of an engaging narrative. And I think, um, you know, there are definitely food writers out there who do that really well, Um, but I'm not interested that much in, I went to this restaurant, I ate this dish, it was good, you know?
1: Right, the thumbs up or thumbs down can be done pretty quickly, and the interesting ones, a lot of times are the ones that it's hard to say. I mean, you know, should I go to Elizabeth? I don't know. I mean, it, it comes with a whole set of assumptions about what you want out of a meal. And if it's just going to be too weird to you, no, you shouldn't go to Elizabeth. But if you want your mind blown, maybe you should go to Elizabeth. You know,
3: Right. And also, I mean, it's so funny. You know, Jeff Ruby wrote this very right. sort of controversial piece about dining at Elizabeth. And, um, you know, I think he got a lot of sort of negative feedback from that and whatever. But at the end of the day, I mean, what a hilarious article I mean it was just really I felt just like joy to read about one person's perspective on dining there even if I agreed or disagreed.
1: Well, and also, I mean, it wasn't one person's perspective by the end because there were so many comments. Mm. I mean, that was, that was a good example of one that, that just took on a life of its own and, the, you know, people refuting it as if it was a legal case. Yeah.
3: <laughs> <And things laughs> no, like he actually had 21 pounds of venison <laughs> in his freezer or whatever. Right. What I learned most from Heather Shouse, who is like, the founding editor, was just, and this is something that was never even a question for me, it's just something I assumed, is that you treat every restaurant with the same degree of importance and seriousness, whether it's, you know, a $400 tasting menu or, you know, this place that has no name on the door and is, I think, called Chill Cafe, but, you know... There's
1: no actual <laughs> evidence of that anywhere in the <laughs> restaurant. Um, maybe something Yelp just made up, but...
3: Um, and that you give them the same sort of care and respect. And um, that's what our star rating was about, too. It's like you, every restaurant is rated on what is it trying to be and how successfully does it do that?
1: They're bringing us another table now. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so we have too much equipment mm-hmm. on this one. Well, I'll just give you my, my little theory of, of timeout, which Yeah, I, I'd love to hear I, I feel like it... It definitely kind of sped up the food scene huh. that people, it became more important to know about places uh, when they were relatively new and to, thank you, and to write about them, which has kind of gone to too far an extreme. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I felt not only that people, you know, people write about a place same night. But also, you know, you, you wanted to know, you know, as soon as Trencherman opened, you know, you needed to have an opinion on Trencherman. You needed to know what Trencherman was about. Mm-hmm. It did kind of change things. And one thing I really saw over time, too, was, which, which I know Timeout did, was the need for going back to places mm-hmm. after a while. I wonder if there are any places that you, you know, reviewed after a month and then went back to after a year or something and felt that they had changed in a significant way.
3: Yeah, um, that was something that, especially in the last two years, David, Tamarkin, and I were increasingly interested in doing, and that's why we came up with the whole Iconic Table series where we would um, go back and revisit restaurants. Unfortunately, it, so it was always interesting because people get so angry, like, oh, you review this place a month in. like." it was barely even open. Like, you have to go back after a year. Like, it's so much better now. I don't know if you've had this experience, but most of the time it's not. I mean, (laughs) most of the time it's pretty much the same. Um, And sometimes the restaurants are not as good. I mean, my sort of neighborhood place, Trencherman, since you brought it up, um, which I really, really loved on my first two visits for the review, now that I've been back six or seven times, I've had a lot of mixed experiences there. You know, sometimes it's been good, sometimes it hasn't been, and um, I think when the chef changes, then it's a little more um, dramatic to go back. Obviously, we reviewed um, L2O after Laurent Gras left, and that was a very strange experience, and I wanted to go back and review it under, um, Matt Kirkley. But then you get into sort of, like, a Phil Vettel next sort of situation. Like, oh, how many times are we going to review l right. you know? Um, so it's tricky. It's tricky to know where to draw the line between this place is worth revisiting and I can say something substantial and interesting and new about it. Um, and, uh, just sort of, um, focusing on the new. And I think that what you're kind of responding to is there's just too much focus on the new. It's just, I mean, it's exhausting.
1: And here comes more.
3: What do we have here? Okay. This is
0: delicious by the way. It's, it's really good. So good. These are the Monties with uh, meat, um, potatoes, onions, steamed in water. And uh, this is the pole, the rice with carrots and meat. The roast beef and lamb. Um, We also have the shish kebab, uh, luda kebab, I'm sorry, which is the lamb, ground, um, meat. This is the salad here. What It has a lot of things inside. Potatoes, sausage, beans, eggs, and that's probably it.
1: Alright, thank you. So, you were famously uh, negative towards certain restaurants. Mm. Although I didn't necessarily find that you were negative overall, but there were there were some that came in for a good lashing. Um, this how is did? Uh, <laughs> how did you feel about that when when reaction came? Yeah. How did you know? What was the reaction?
3: Um, so basically, it was it was strange because I came to Chicago from um, outside Los Angeles. Even though I'm I'm from here, but I've been out there for four years and. um... I I think when you walk into looking back on it, it was kind of just like I didn't know, you know, I didn't know that you weren't ever supposed to say something bad about a Paul Kahn restaurant, you know, <laughs> like I didn't know that um, uh, that most of the the sort of the highest profile kind of long standing critics in Chicago generally were offering positive recommendations each week. You know, I just assumed um, that what my job was and, and what I continued to do was um, to go to restaurants and write honestly about the experiences that I had. And my only real obligation was to the reader, you know, that I wanted them to trust me. I would never wanted to steer them wrong. I, um, if they're gonna, sp- you know, I started in 2008, like right as the, economy sort of fell out, like if people were gonna spend their money at a restaurant, I just wanted it to be worth it for them. I, I wouldn't want to recommend recommend something that um, I didn't think was worth people's money. So I was very shocked when I'd write these reviews and people would jump into the comments section and just say, you know, oh did the chef break up with you? Or like, oh um, you're just like a spoiled brat or you know just sort of these um, kind of misogynistic uh, really personal comments and everyone said to me you got to grow thicker skin like you can't take this so personally like if you're gonna you know dish it out to these places like you have to be willing and able to sort of accept that same criticism coming back at you, and I have gotten a lot better at that um, over the last couple years. Um, I think maybe I'm just immune to it, um, but it was funny, I mean, even in the final post that Laura Baginski put up that to say that I was leaving Time Out, of course, you know, some people jumped in the comments, good riddance, like, you know, whatever, and it doesn't even faze me anymore.
1: You did some other coverage um, besides reviews. For was sure. that was that hard to balance? Um, you're going to say something nasty about someone's restaurant, and then you know you, you know that you may have some reason to call on them for a story.
3: Yeah, I mean that's one of the sort of flaws of the setup, it, and why it makes sense that you know at a place like the New York Times, when they have a crit, restaurant critic, he's basically only a restaurant critic, um, because. Uh, you know, if I wanted to do a profile piece on um, Rob and Kevin from the Boca Group, which I did, um, I then have to weigh: well, is it worth doing this piece to never be able to review one of their restaurants again? And that's something that I was able to do because we had multiple critics. Um, but in the current setup of Timeout, where there was only one restaurant critic. Under the web-only version, um, that wouldn't have been an option. I would have just not had. I wouldn't have been able to write stories like that. The flip side, obviously, what you're asking about is more like the kind of situation that I imagine maybe Phil Patel is in, where like here you're kind of relying on a certain level of access to restaurants, um, and that you don't want to squander that by writing a negative review or something. I never worried about that, um, because I think that the restaurants that are um, mature um, know that no matter what we say in the review, we are going to cover them likely at some point in the future. I mean, what happened after I reviewed Graham Witch is Graham Elliot, basically never let us cover either Graham Witch or his, like original restaurant, Graham Elliott, again, for a certain period of time, they just wouldn't let us in. Well, that's his problem. I mean, he's just squandering me- what could have been positive media opportunities, and I never really, that's not something that I ever um, considered when writing a review, but it, it did sometimes get in the way of profile pieces that I, that I wanted to write.
1: I mean, the other thing about reviewing, too, is you have to be pure from the beginning if you want to keep your face out of things and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. Um, How did you deal with not being known? You know, at a certain point, there must have been at least uh, Graham Elliott wanting to know uh, what you looked like and all of that, which is ironic in that I think the first place I met you in person was at Graham Witch. Yes. Yes.
3: That's right. Um, Yeah. Graham Elliot, after I reviewed GEB, did you see this? He tweeted a photo that he thought was of me, but it was really some just random woman. <laughs> I mean I hope he didn't they didn't like spit in her food or something. But he <laughs> thought he was like outing me on Twitter, but it was someone like who bare I mean she had the same color hair, but uh. that's pretty much it. Um I really enjoyed being anonymous. Mostly because on the rare occasions when I wasn't, I was just so uncomfortable. I mean, I just felt like people were watching me and I just, you know, a different you know manager or whatever is coming up to the table between every course, so oh, how is everything? How is everything? And <laughs> I, in general, even just with a server, I really don't care to be asked how is everything. Um, I'm never gonna give an honest answer. I'm always <laughs> gonna say it's good. I think it's just sort of like a insufferable conversation. I would much re- fake conversation. I'd much rather they just ask like is there anything else you need? And I don't know maybe that's like terrible in classes I just think they should be like I'm not saying they should be like servants or something I'm just saying like I um, I the, I prefer like the less the less kind of attention. I can get in a restaurant the better, um, so that's part of why I enjoyed being anonymous. Not because of the whole like gotcha, you know what I mean, uh-huh. <laughs> aspect. Um, and I was pretty much able to maintain that. Um,
1: I remember yeah. you said you were made at Belena, for one. Oh
3: yeah, for sure. Um, but then I went back and disguised. Oh, I guess and, had you
1: already worked with, you'd done something with with Boca Group at that.
3: Right. Point, so. And so, but David. Um, And I discussed it, and we were like, oh, Rob and Kevin won't be there. Like, won't be a problem. Of course they were there. Um, But then I went back a second time in disguise, and they must have walked past me 20 times and (laughs) had no idea that it was me. So there were ways to sort of handle that, but that was pretty rare. And I don't know if you've experienced this, but um, the truth of the matter is, like, there are very few restaurants who knew what I looked like and probably even fewer who cared. So (laughs) it was by and large, not a real issue. And there is a certain, um, something really pleasant about going to a place where they know you. You know, and um, I never felt like I got to be a real regular anywhere um, with a couple exceptions because I did a sort of barback stint at Law. They all know me there. Um, and I've really, I really enjoy that. Like, sometimes you just want to go somewhere where you know the people working and um, you chat with them and whatever um, but aside from that and then I also got pretty close with the guys at Flipside Cafe oh okay um, but they didn't know who I was I mean they didn't know I was like, a food writer Which uh, I just like loved just a going there yeah. <laughs> oh wow
1: thank
3: you <laughs>
1: thank you dessert has arrived even though we have <laughs> enough food for 12 people in front of us already so, is there anywhere that you, you know, that you were harsh on that you you've been back to and you want to say? I know David David corrected some one review and I can't think what it was. Do you mm. remember what it was? Ombra. Ombra. Yes. Mm-hmm.
3: Um, that's a good question. That same issue is the one where I like ap- tried to sort of fake apologize to Billy Dack for calling him a douchebag in my oh. Room <laughs> review. Um, but I actually. I felt bad about that review at the time, um, but in retrospect, I, I think it was pretty fair. Um, I'm trying to think of any other places. I mean, Kevin Bain from the Boca Group wrote me this really nice email, and he found out that I was leaving, and um, he said that I made him cry with what I said about the Jay Parker, and that wasn't even a review. I mean, it didn't even give stars. Um, So I guess I feel pretty badly about that, but in the end, I wouldn't want to change anything because I just wrote about my experience, so I don't think, um, I mean, I think with the pump room that I sort of maybe developed, I, I, I caught myself, sometimes it's too easy to sort of, um, come up, for me, it's too easy to come up with these really, um, negative one-liners it's like i don't know where it comes from but i can just sort of like just throw them out one after the other um and that was sort of a wake-up call for me like you need to um pay more attention not not let the negative comments be easy you know they have to be as careful as any sort of praise
1: although that's the kind of place where it's you know, there's a lot of money going into it. There's a lot of professionalism going into it, and it seems to me sort of undershooting, yeah, <laughs> what it should be yes. doing. And uh, you know, regarding something is kind of good enough for Chicago. You know, that that's the sort of place that would get my, you know, my blood up.
3: Oh, totally.
0: Where I'm more
1: forgiving crazy. of just somebody who's in the business and isn't really delivering on what they. Want to be delivering on.
3: Right, it just seemed like they went in saying, oh, like ABC Kitchen's really successful, like we'll just kind of do a Chicago version of that, you know, like just, you know, like ABC Kitchen, but not quite as ambitious, you know, and I, I couldn't help but feel a little insulted by it, even though I, I think that the room is gorgeous and I think there's certainly like you know some positive things about the restaurant, but right. overall it definitely rubbed the wrong way.
1: Yeah, the, I like the bar across the way, the, mm. the one on the other side. What is it? The library? The library, or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's have Julia Kramer's last review. Chill Cafe. Uh, what is it? Twenty nine. Forty nine. Twenty nine forty nine West Belmont. Uh, the sign out front just says like soup, salad, sandwiches. If you're looking for it, something like that. Um, what do you think of Chill Cafe?
3: I love this place. I'm so glad I came here before I left. Um, I was talking to um, Abraham Conlin from Fat Rice and he mentioned this place to me, when, because I was joking with him about what my last, actually I was joking about what, what my last review was gonna be because he said that um, I really went out with a very negative bang <laughs> with kabocha. As it turned out, I didn't have time to really do a final review but I wanted to come here anyway and um, just because I'd never heard of it that's that's kind of rare you know i <laughs> sure um, for you uh, so yeah I, I really love the soup um, I love dumplings so I'm thrilled that we have two types of dumplings um, and I just you know it's always so impressive to find a place that's making their own you know savory pastries and desserts and in the words of G-Wiv, count me a fan.
1: (laughs) Watch for Julia Kramer's future work at Bon Appetit. Chill Cafe is located at 2949 West Belmont, though as we said, it doesn't actually say Chill Cafe anywhere on the outside. You can see pictures of the storefront and of the food we ate at SkyFillOfBacon.com Fet Chicago, an occasional artisanal market, threw a weekend-long food and arts festival in April. And as part of it, Second Story, which stages nights of true-life storytelling at various places in Chicago, held an evening of food tales at Ina's on Randolph Street. And I was one of the people they invited to read a story. Gulp. I write lots about food, but stories? Not exactly. Nonetheless, with some coaching from Second Stories experts, I managed to come up with a story to tell and a performance to give about being a food writer and food explorer who shares that with a couple of kids. Here's what the audience at Ina's heard that Friday night. From the beginning, it was important to me that my kids have an interest in interesting food. My interest in food came from my parents and grandparents in Kansas though not exactly in the same way that I'm trying to give it to my kids. It was more like this. My grandfather was the football coach at the local university, and so he hung out with kind of a sporting crowd, many of whom were Jewish guys who owned department stores and liked to bet on the games and play the horses. And so I'm pretty sure I was the only Irish Catholic kid in the entire state of Kansas who could count on finding gefilte fish in the fridge when I got home from school. Hmm... Little Debbie Snack Cakes or Knish? What's in your lunchbox? Snackables? I have beef tongue on rye. And it's weird because in other ways, my family was really kind of unadventurous about food. My grandfather pretty much only ate steak, and he had apparently had the perfect steak once in 1947. Because he bitched about every steak he ate after that. So here we are, every time we go out to dinner. The adults drink and smoke at the table and talk about how terrible so-and-so is looking these days. We're drawing pictures and trying to make each other laugh and blow seven up through our noses. But the moment is coming. The moment when my grandfather is going to call the manager over and bitch him out about his steak. And we're going to have to sit there cringing, desperately miserable kids as the whole restaurant stops and stares at us the trouble-causing family. (laughs) It's a wonder I can eat out at all now. And yet, for all that, there was the gefilte fish in the fridge. So from an early age, I lived in this world where food was very Middle American, very Kansan, literally meat and potatoes. And yet there was nothing strange about ethnic foods floating around the edges of it, too. And so moving to the big city was pretty much motivated by the possibilities awaiting me here. More foods to try from more funny parts of the world. I mean, really, why else would you come to a big city? Big cities are a pain in, as we say in Kansas, the Tookus. But they open the whole world to you through food. It's the common ground we all meet on. By definition, you're not going to work with a Greek diner cook or a barbecue pitmaster from Mississippi at a VC-funded digital advertising startup. The only place where my Chicago and their Chicago are going to cross paths is in their restaurant. Going to restaurants is the easiest way to keep your view of this big city from shrinking down to a small place full of people just like you. So that was an important thing for me with my kids when I had kids. I wanted them to to see the city, the whole city, the way I did. Of course, as little kids, they had no choice. My (laughs) adventures in lunch were theirs too. 2003, my son Liam is 18 months old. I had spotted an enclave of Egyptian restaurants in Albany Park, places with stereotype-friendly names like Luxor, Nefertiti Cafe, and one simply called The Pharaohs. I decided to check the last one of them out with my son in tow, and when I found it, I also found, to my delight, that I was parking right in front of the Admiral Theater, I really hope someone driving by thought I was taking my 18-month-old to the strip club where mommy works. (laughs) Entering the pharaohs took you back to the days when all Chinese restaurants were named the Great Wall. Not only was the name stereotypical, but the room had been done in the style of a pharaoh's tomb with off-the-shelf bas-relief tiles of the most cliched Egyptian scenes and a big screen TV playing a 1970s Egyptian action movie set to disco music. As I was strapping my son into a high chair, the male owner, who looked like a disco-scored Egyptian action hero, walked by with a cigarette in his hand, talking loudly into his cell phone. This was, I had learned, one important sign that you were in an authentic restaurant. Which is that the guy who owned the restaurant had about eight other businesses, and he was too busy with all of them at once to notice you. A moment later, though, his wife came out. And here's where the advantage of, of exploring the city with a baby showed itself. We weren't really even in a restaurant anymore, now we were in their home, and the business of the day was to smile at my baby, to feed my baby a yogurt by hand, to take my baby out of the high chair and dance with him in the restaurant. Soon others were coming out from the kitchen too, other women, an older man with an extravagant mustache who looked more like he was a shepherd than a cook or whatever he did. They all came out and played with the baby. Even the owner stuck his cigarette in his lips and pushed his phone out of the way and muttered, His cute kid, at one point. They have been blessed with a visit from a chubby blonde miniature albino godling, and business has come to a halt while they're enjoying every minute of his beaming, giggly self. And so am I. As my sons got older, they began to appreciate these trips to an alternate ethnic Chicago for themselves, which was both a good and a bad thing. I mean, as a parent, you want them to become their own people with their own opinions, right? But then they start thinking that they can veto it when you want Thai food. little fascist. (laughs) But you keep on pushing them to try things, to expand their horizons. 2005. Miles is six, Liam is three. We're in an Indian restaurant, Himalayan and Niles. Actually, it's run by Nepalese, though it's exactly like every Indian restaurant I've been to. The formally dressed waiters and the historic tribal paintings and prints on the wall. What I like about the impassive formality of the staff is that it means that if even if, say, your kid were to scatter rice like the falling snow in a five-foot circle around him, they'll treat you with the same stiff courtesy. Don't ask how I know this. So we've been coming to Indian restaurants for a while because I can eat what I want and they can eat non bread and rice. It's an entirely white diet. We could never go to India because that's what they'd live on the whole time and they'd come home with scurvy. And yet somehow on this occasion, they're suddenly fascinated by the sizzling platter of tandoori chicken. It's hot. It makes noise and steam like a toy train. It has been brought to us and they are amazed to learn that if they eat it all, we can ask for more. And so, they try it. They actually eat Indian food in an Indian restaurant. And that night, when we get home and my wife is home from work, they are eager to tell her all about it. No, not just eager. Converted. The zeal of the convert. Mom, you have to try the red chicken. The red chicken is so good. They're selling tandoori chicken harder than the salesman in Glengarry Glen Ross. Ironically, they're never as fond of it again, actually. But I don't think it was really the red chicken that they loved, so much as the feeling that their whole world had grown larger in the eating of it. I would see this again with fettuccine Alfredo, with falafel, with tacos al pastor. To eat the world was to conquer it, bit by bite. But the years pass, and at some point you're as much equal as parent, well, at least for a moment here and there. By now my kids simply take it for granted that this is how life is lived. You may have 43 Starbuckses around your house, but it's perfectly logical to go check out a coffee shop in an Arab neighborhood instead. That's just what you do, because you live in a city. 2012, Miles is 13. I read some reviews online of a place called Brothers Coffee on Kedzie Street. It sounded like a hopping coffee shop with an Arabic flavor. I formed a picture in my head of a place which combined Wicker Park hipness with a Middle Eastern souk feel, drawing a busy crowd of North Park University students, perhaps. So one Sunday morning, my older son and I went there. The reality proved to be a vast, half-vacant storefront consisting of a counter with the usual third-world grocer offerings, phone cards and the like, which gradually became the proprietor's living room as you moved toward the back where he sat watching TV and smoking and seemed surprised that anybody would come in and want something. (laughs) There were the usual bun coffee makers and warmers, but they were not in use that day, nor was the small espresso machine. Miles ordered a hot chocolate. I ordered a coffee, which the owner proceeded to draw from yet another machine, which promised Jerusalem coffee. The result was the most sugar-filled drink I have ever tasted. It was like drinking warm brown insulin. (laughs) I know they like coffee and tea sweet in the Middle East But do they really drink it this way in Jerusalem? Arthur C. Clarke once wrote a story about the discovery of life forms on the sun And the melancholy realization that there was life which we could never know Because it existed at temperatures that kept us at an unbreachable distance That's how I feel about the coffee house culture that can drink coffee this sweet It will forever be a closed book to me by now I'm looking for some way to redeem this experience, to find the place I had imagined in my head and have the moment of cross-cultural enlightenment that I was counting on. I told the guy, sorry, I just can't hack this stuff. I'll pay for it, but maybe you could make, you know, a, cup of, a pot of American coffee in the American coffee pot? For some reason this was not possible, because it would take 20 minutes. Instead he made me Turkish coffee. Here at least I knew the drill. You have to wait for the grounds to settle into silt at the bottom if you don't want a mouthful of grit. But was it to be that simple? Of course not. He had some kind of cardamom-flavored coffee. This was proudly shown to me, to let me know that I was going to have something special. And where the coffee grounds would eventually sink, the tiny bits of cardamom would not. You couldn't drink it without getting a mouthful of seeds and stems, basically. It was kind of him to try so hard to give me what I evidently wanted. It really was. But every step was just getting me stuck deeper in the mud. Finally, when he wasn't looking, I poured most of my second cup of coffee into the first, as if I'd drunk it, and paid my bill. So what was Miles doing the whole time as I sat there, trying to force my way to an authentic experience? He was sitting there, chilling, having his hot chocolate, taking in the scene. He had no crazy idea that he had to have a cup of coffee with a side of perfect cultural understanding. He was sipping his hot chocolate and just being there, as if to say, You raised me to be like you and have experiences like these, but I don't have to get crazy about it. Taking him to experience my world, in the end, he had, like all children, grown one of his own. Thanks for actually coming back to hear more of this. Thanks to my guests, Joaquin Soler and Julia Kramer. Thanks to Ila and Sultana at Chill Cafe. And to Heather Sperling of FET Chicago and everybody at Second Story. Molly Each and Ozzy Totten, who coordinated the event. Lee Stark for coaching me. Rich Kawahara for engineering. And the lovely Ina Pinkney for hosting us all. If you want to hear Ina's story from that night, go to Second Story. That's 2ndstory.com. And have the Kleenex ready. Get addresses, links, and stuff at skyfullofbacon.com. And please, support this by subscribing for free at iTunes. Music is by Kevin McLeod. I'll be back in a few weeks. This was Episode 2.